Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy 3. We are in the beginning of our exposition into 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 13 talking about the qualifications of ministers in the local church. And I told you last week this is going to be a multi-part series. Last week we sought to establish simply the foundational nature of the offices, what the offices are, why we understand them to be what they are, their functions in the local church, what offices are, 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 uh, are there, what functions are there, and then what functions are no longer in the, the church as we understand it today, and the reasons why that we would, we would believe this to be so. So we considered the nature of the Bible's teaching as it relates to ministers and offices, and we established the biblical precedent for our conviction that the daily operation of the local church rests upon the shoulders of two offices, namely the bishop, pastor, elder, the same office there, and the deacon, the bishop, pastor, elder being responsible for the spiritual maintenance, growth, and direction of the church, and the deacon is responsible to be a servant of that servant uh, to take the material responsibilities off of the plate of the elder bishop pastor so that he might devote himself to those spiritual needs. Now, that foundation being laid, we're going to step into a little bit more exposition now. Again, we are going to go quite slowly through this, and, and that being in part because these things really matter, but, but what I hope to do is not just say this is the qualification and this is what it means, but I want to biblically justify these things. Biblically justify our thinking as it relates to the elements of these qualifications. And not all of them need uh, to be deeply biblically justified. But there are certain ones that have been interpreted a certain way in the church. And now the church is seeking to reinterpret them. Or they've been interpreted a certain way, but, but there's not a lot of precedent for that. Or they've been interpreted a certain way and there is good justification for it. But nobody really knows that justification. And so we're going to continue to go quite slowly through this passage in order that we can understand and and, and formulate a framework for these qualifications. And in order to do so, we need to, to go in some directions that go beyond just the minister and root themselves simply in doctrine. So as we walk through the list, we're going to find that there are certain qualifications that do need more direct attention. And I do hope that as we go through this, not only will they get that direct attention, but it will help remind us about the importance of the nature of the leaders that are chosen to lead the church and how important it is because the work that's being done here is a spiritual work. It is not fitted simply for the most talented man or the most capable man. It is fitted for those who are spiritual who are gifted and led by the Spirit of God, whose life commends itself both to uh, spiritual maturity and to spiritual faithfulness. So let's dig into the text today. We're back in verse 1 here, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And the Bible says this. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop... He desireth a good work. Now, this was the launching point last week for our talking about that word bishop, but we didn't actually expire much, uh, ex- expound much, excuse me, um, exposit the text very much. Uh, Paul states, first of all, that the desire unto the role of a spiritual leader, the desire to be a bishop, pastor, or elder, is a desire for something that is very good. And take note here, you know, notice that what I normally do on these slides is that I highlight certain words and then I'll give you the generalized, the generally understood Greek definition underneath. And normally you can, how you follow that is the first word that's highlighted is the first definition on the slide and then the second one that's highlighted is the second definition on the slide. Uh, that is the same case here, but you notice that the, the word desire and desireth, it's the same word in the English, but you see two Greek definitions underneath. That is because these two words are two entirely different Greek words that our King James translators use the same English word to reflect. This is, of course, one of those complications about going from uh, Greek to English is that uh, certain languages are more specific and other languages aren't. Certain languages have more detail or have more words to describe something, whereas other ones do not. And so this word, desire, is used both times in our King James. But we see two different Greek words reflecting 
selected here. The first time, if a man desire the office of a bishop, that word literally means to reach for. The idea of pursuing something, pursuing or reaching out for the role of the bishop, the role of the pastor. If a man pursues that role, if a man reaches for that role, if a man aspires unto that role, he desireth, this is our second word here, his desire, his longing, his craving, uh, this word epithumeo is even a word that, that can mean to covet uh, every other month when we do the Lord's table in the evening. Uh, we go to the Luke passage, right, to, to talk about the Lord's table instead of 1 Corinthians. And we read that phrase where Jesus says, with desire have I desired to eat this uh, with, to eat this Passover with you one more time before I depart. That word there, desire, is the same word, epithumeo. It's a craving, a longing for. If a man is aspiring, if he's reaching for the office of the bishop, he's craving, he's desiring, he's longing for something good. This is a good aspiration. This is a right desire. It is a truly good thing. We spoke last week about the honor of the office, not the man but the office. We know that there is a blessing to be found in such work. And so it is good that a man would so desire to serve that he would become a pastor. But just because there is an allure to the ministry does not mean that every man is fitted for it. Just because a desire is there, a desire is not enough. A willingness is simply not enough. God's ministers must meet a, a certain set of qualifications or must, and we'll talk about this again in a couple of weeks, must foundationally be directed toward those qualifications because they're going to be entrusted with the hearts and the minds of God's people. And as we considered together last week in James chapter 3, verse 1, there is not just a blessing that comes with the work of the ministry, but there is also a very strong warning that comes with the work of the ministry. A man who takes upon himself the mantle of leadership in the church, who is, who is uh, ordained unto that, opens up a unique avenue of, of blessing and of opportunity and of reward, but he also opens up a unique avenue of accountability and judgment. And we all know this. We all know that with every level of responsibility, uh, with every level of blessing comes a level of accountability and responsibility, right? Uh, becoming a parent, uh, becoming a parent uh, brought along with it tremendously uh, high highs, new blessings, uh, opportunities for joys and for satisfaction and for fulfillments and for delights that I have never before experienced. The delight of seeing your child learn to walk and learn to talk and then uh, work hard and, and desire to please you. Uh, my, my little daughter running down the aisle after church you know, every week, Daddy, you know, running down the aisle to give me a hug. Uh, th those, are, are, those are tremendously high highs, right? But with it comes some low lows. It's really different. It's a, it's, it's a, a whole new level of fear and of, of sorrow when your child is sick than it is when you're sick. There's a whole nother level of of, of fear that can, that can enter your heart when you have a child who has a problem and you can't fix it. There's high highs and there's low lows. There's new opportunities opened up both for pleasure and for pain with that responsibility that comes upon you. Same with getting married, same with uh, moving up in the workforce, all of these things. And it is also the same with the pastorate. And to this end, these qualifications should matter, as we talked about last week. We cannot put enough stress upon the fact that the pastorate is a spiritual work conducted by spiritual men to accomplish spiritual purposes. And anytime we're willing to sacrifice some measure of spiritual distinction at the altar of expedience or charisma or capacity, we're doing a disservice to the people of God and to the work of God. So we talk about these qualifications together. And this is going to be a very word-heavy study over the next several weeks. We're going to get, dig down to the words, talk about what these words mean, and, uh, and then at certain points we are going to branch off into the implications. And we're going to do that this week um, with one of these first qualifications. So the Bible says in verse 2, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt 
to teach. And we see here this first qualification being blamelessness. Now, blamelessness is not sinlessness, okay? Uh, Blameless is not sinless. It's not sinless perfection, but rather it is a qualification that calls a man to be what we might call above reproach. The idea is that he is above reproach, that regardless of how any one person feels about him, there is nothing in his life that a a group or a person could grab a hold of that would be considered a tarnish upon the ministry or a tarnish upon God through him. Now, there's always going to be individuals that are going to say, I don't like this guy for one reason or another, and and he gave me this look, or he said this to me, and and, and then uh, impose upon that some fault. That's not what we're talking about. What we are talking about is the general tenor and manner of his life that is reflective of, uh, of, of virtue, of obedience, of faithfulness. It is not that he never makes mistakes. It is not that he, that, that he is a perfect man. It is not that he has no flaws, but rather that when people look at him, they say, there's a man of integrity. There's a man of, of faithfulness. There's a man who loves the Lord. There's a man who can acknowledge mistakes. He's not a perfect man, but he is a good man, a blameless man. This is that idea here. No skeleton in the closet. No particular flaw of character that would cast a shadow upon his ministry or upon the church and thus cast a shadow upon the word of God. And really, the remainder of the qualifications mentioned can be considered an elaboration of this. If I were to retranslate this, I would put a semicolon, or excuse me, just a colon after blameless. I would say that everything that goes from this point onward is talking about what it means to be blameless is talking about the general character of the man's life that would reflect an above reproach character. That these are the things that God does not want people to, to uh, have problems with as a, uh, as a general rule or a minister to have a problem with as a general rule because these are the types of things that can mar his testimony. So I would uh, see everything, blameless is kind of the, the umbrella category that everything else is going to fall under. And that's how I would read this as I study. If all of these things that we're going to read about over the next several weeks are properly in line, then this man is a man who's above reproach. Not perfect, but his life and his family will not bring a shame or a reproach to God or the people of God, and the man's ministry will exhibit exhibit spiritual vibrancy and effectiveness. And the first blameless qualification that we find here is that he is the husband of one wife. Now, uh, first take note of the fact that we are talking about a man here, right? He is the husband of one wife. This pastor is implicitly a man. This makes sense because we've already seen from, from 1 Timothy 2 that women are not to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, right? So it is already implicit. It is already taken for granted that you are not imposing these qualifications upon a woman for the pastorate because Paul has already made it explicitly clear that that is unbiblical, right? So we, impo- we, we, we don't take the separation between 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3, that, that chapter separation, as a separation in Paul's context. The context carries over from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Women are not to teach nor to, to usurp authority over men in the church. They're biblically unqualified to be pastors in the local church. And so this man is called to be the husband of one wife. Now, literally translated, and you notice I give you uh, a phrase here instead of just a word. Literally translated, this means a one-woman man. Now, historically, the church has taken this qualification to mean that the minister cannot have been divorced and remarried. This is drawn from various teachings of the Word of God about the nature of divorce and remarriage, and that's what we're going to spend the bulk of our time doing today is understanding where this historical context for that qualification comes from. But do take note that this is something that is, is tremendously controversial in the church today, and that because it's been several, gener- it's been several decades now probably two generations since the church started really muddying the waters on divorce, right? They started, the the main nine evangelical church started muddying the waters on whether or not divorce and remarriage is something that is biblically uh, acceptable. And then, of course, the desire to minister to those who have had divorces in their lives uh, has caused people to feel as though there's some contradiction in saying something should not happen while simultaneously ministering to those who have Uh, found themselves in the situation where it has happened. So 
we see this qualification, and the question is, what does it mean that, that this man is the husband of one wife? Is there a reason why, historically speaking, the church has taken this idea of the husband of one wife and said, a man may not be divorced and remarried and then enter into the ministry? And that's something that I'd like for us to get some context about. Uh, I've spoken of divorce before. I do have a write-up that I have uh, made on divorce, which teaches some of these principles. I need to add on to it. The, the, I haven't uh, edited it in some time, and there's some things that need to be added on to about it. But what I'd like to do is spend a, a good portion of our time walking through those principles together so that you can understand what the Word of God has to say on this issue, and we can gain a perspective on it as it relates to Christians as a whole, and then as we kind of funnel that down as it relates to the minister of God. So the teaching begins with Matthew chapter 5, as far as our New Testament teaching on divorce is concerned. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, the Bible says this. Jesus writes, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. So Jesus here contrasts what is written in the law, whereby divorce is allowed for what Jesus will call in Matthew 19, the hardness of their hearts, uh, to God's design in marriage. He is bringing the law back up to the standard that God intended for it to reflect. By God's design, he says, according to the law, according to Old Testament law, Anyone who divorced his spouse, except in the case that that woman, particularly, the woman could not divorce the man, but anyone, any man who divorced his woman for uh, anything other than uncleanness being found in her, sexual impurity, adultery, causes that spouse to commit adultery with whomsoever it is that they remarry. Now, quickly, let's understand the historical concepts that enlighten this passage. I just mentioned women were not free to divorce men in Jewish culture. To that end, there was absolutely no consideration of the idea that a woman could divorce a man. So Jesus speaks only to men divorcing women here, and that's what we see here. If a man, uh, whosoever shall put away his wife, it doesn't say put away their spouse here, it says put away his wife. As a matter of fact, the only time that we see uh, the concept of, of a woman leaving a man in the scriptures is when we get beyond Jewish context and we get into the context of the church in 1 Corinthians. And in the church in 1 Corinthians, because he's talking to a group of Gentiles there that were not connected to the Old Testament law, it seems as though there was culturally more of an acceptability to the idea of a woman leaving a man just like a man could divorce a woman. So we see that concept there, but we certainly don't see it here. And that because Jesus is speaking within the framework of Jewish law. He's speaking to a Jewish group of people talking about how they have interpreted and understood the Jewish law. Because only men could divorce women, the blame here for causing a spouse to commit adultery is taught only from the perspective of the man. Third, the woman needed to be married in order to function in society. And this is something else that we understood throughout much of history. A woman could not just leave her husband, go and live single and get a job and, and be fine, right? She needed a husband in order to live. And so remember these historical contexts to what Jesus is saying here, that women were not free to divorce men, only men, women, that thus Jesus lays the blame at the hands of men for this circumstance because it would be the man that would be initiating the divorce in this context. And then third, that a woman needed to be married, which means if a man was going to divorce a woman, he was, by virtue of him putting her away, he was almost certainly compelling her to commit adultery with someone else. Because, and so the only time where he was not, well, we'll get there in just a moment. So he says that if a man divorces a woman, he's causing her to commit adultery. This statement is based upon the assumption that she will leave him and go get married to someone else. This is the assumption that's made here. He's causing her to commit adultery because she's still married to him in the eyes of God, but she's, she has left him and is marrying someone else. What is the only time then that this is not the case. See, a man and a woman who divorce 
according to the law, the only time where that was admissible was if there was an uncleanness in her. And thus we see that if she goes and she remarries and, and, and she remarries another man, she's committing adultery because God does not see that union between the first man and the woman as having actually been, um, been dissolved. So when she does remarry, she's committing adultery and the man who marries her is committing adultery. Thus the man who divorces his wife is causing her and the man she will marry to commit adultery because he chose to divorce her he chose to put her into a situation where effectively she has to commit adultery in order to live. And this is that idea. This is what Jesus is saying here. That if a man puts away his wife, and then he gives that exception, which we'll talk about in just a moment. If he puts away his wife, he is causing her to commit adultery because she's going to go get remarried. And, he, and thus she's committing adultery. And as we'll see a little bit later, the man who marries her is also committing adultery. The only exception is if she had already committed adultery. Now, follow me here. In the case where a woman has already committed adultery and then a man divorces her and perhaps she goes to marry that man with whom she's already committed adultery or perhaps she goes and she marries another man, the man who divorced her is not at, is not at fault for causing her to commit adultery because she, already, she chose to do that before she even left him, Right? before she was divorced. So divorce is not actually even the topic of what Jesus is saying here. In the case that a man would not cause the woman to commit adultery by divorcing her, because she's already chosen herself to commit adultery, the man is not at fault for causing her to commit adultery. Take note that nothing Jesus says here has anything to do with whether or not it's okay to divorce. This, this isn't talking about whether or not it's okay to divorce. Jesus is assuming upon the nature of the law, which gives them a means by which to divorce. And he's talking about adultery itself. That if you put away a woman, so he's, he is elevating this to marriage, right? Not, not divorce, marriage. Marriage is a sanctified union between a man and a woman in the eyes of God. And any sexual activity outside of that union is considered by God to be adultery. The only time that doesn't take place is if the woman has already committed adultery, then the man is not forcing a woman to commit adultery by divorcing her, thus compelling her to marry some other man and commit adultery with him. So it's about the nature and the sanctity of marriage, and it's about the nature of a man's decision to put away his wife, and thus causing her to commit adultery. So it's about a man causing a woman to commit adultery by divorcing her or a man committing adultery by marrying a divorced woman. So this teaching in and of itself, again, this exception clause idea here isn't quite the way perhaps it has been painted before. The idea that, well, you can't divorce, but if there's an adultery situation, then God is okay with your divorce. Then, it, then, then no holds barred, you can get divorced, you can remarry, all of that. It's okay because there has been adultery. That's not what's going on here. That's not what Jesus is teaching about. Now, this teaching is rounded out by Jesus' teaching again in Matthew chapter 19. And in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, the Bible says this, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, that would be Jesus, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that which made them, at the beginning, made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So the Pharisees here tempted Jesus by asking him a hard question. And that hard question is, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any reason or for every cause. Now take note of the nature of that question. Take note of the particular point. The Pharisees are asking, can a man, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now they're asking him a question that relates to the law in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, the, the Old Testament law states that if a man marries a woman and some uncleanness is found in her, that he may put her away. And what the rabbinical traditions had done is they had taken this idea of uncleanness being found in her, which by implication we understand in Matthew chapter 5 to mean that she commits adultery, right? That she is not sexually pure. That would be the uncleanness being found in her. Because that's what Jesus was correcting and reiterating in Matthew 5. So that was the understanding of what that meant. But what the Jewish tradition had done is they had taken this idea of some uncleanness being found in her and they had heightened it to if you're displeased with your wife, you can put her away. She burns dinner. If she uh, gets home late, then you have, you have a cause by which to divorce her. And so the Pharisees were asking about this clarification. And, and that's the exact idea that Jesus was reflecting in Matthew chapter 5. That for a man to divorce his wife for any reason other than sexual uncleanness is to sin against her because you are going to cause her to go into adultery in order to live. But what Jesus didn't say in Matthew 5 was whether or not God was okay with divorce, right? That was not the context of Matthew 5. Jesus answers that question here. Notice that Jesus does not appeal to Deuteronomy chapter 24 to answer this question. When they say, is it lawful to put away your wife for any reason? Jesus does not say, well, in the law, it says that you can put her away if there's an uncleanness found in her. Jesus doesn't appeal to Deuteronomy 24. Jesus does not appeal to the Mosaic law. He appeals to Genesis chapter 1. He appeals all the way back to creation. He appeals all the way back to God's original design and intent in the institution of marriage. That God has made man and woman. He has made us male and female. That God has designed a man to leave his father and mother and to cleave unto his wife. How do we know that this is a principle? Because Adam didn't have a father or mother. Right? Adam didn't leave and cleave. So we know that God was instituting a principle, an institution, (laughs) because he's setting something down that didn't even exist yet. That man would leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and they too would become one flesh. That these two, in coming together and sharing in the intimacy of marriage, are thus in the eyes of God, now one. They are no more two entities, but one. And what God has joined together, Jesus says, let not man put asunder. When they are married, they are joined by God, and man has no power to separate what God has joined together. And that is the end of Jesus' answer. Their question ends right here. And that's interesting. They ask, is it lawful to put away your wife for every cause? Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And that's the end of his answer. Now, a lot of people superimpose what Jesus says next upon his answer, but take note of this. The Pharisees are now going to ask a second question. Jesus is not still answering the question, is it lawful to put away your wife for any cause, when he answers their second question. There's a whole new question that's going to be asked here. So Jesus says that as a matter of design, God has designed marriage to be between one man and one woman, and that when they are joined together, it is intended to be a lifelong institution. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Jesus stops the answer there. Then the Pharisees ask a follow-up question. And the follow-up question is in verses 7 and the the answer through verse 9 of Matthew 19. They say unto him, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? So now they're appealing to Deuteronomy 24. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Okay, if if that's true, the Pharisees ask, if it's true that what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, if it's true that God made the male and female, and they too are made one flesh, then why is it? I mean, if they are one flesh, if they have been joined together in such a spiritual way by God, then why would Moses allow for a bill of divorcement. 
What, what, why, why would that be in, in the Mosaic law then? And Jesus answers the second question in this way. He says, because of the hardness of your hearts. Because of the hardness of man's hearts. Here's the thing. People are flawed, aren't they? People make bad decisions. People are stubborn. And all of us have made bad decisions, haven't we? We've all made mistakes. It's unfortunate, but it happens. But just because we make mistakes, and sometimes those mistakes lead to problems, lead to bad things, those mistakes can even lead to devastating consequences. That doesn't change God. It doesn't change God's design. Our flaws don't, cannot change God's ordained principles. Jesus says from the beginning it was not so. And then he goes on to say a similar thing that he did in Matthew 5. But he adds another layer. So remember from Matthew chapter 5 that to this point, if a man puts away his wife and, uh, and she remarries, that man has caused his wife to commit adultery. And the only exception, of course, is when fornication is involved. In that case, the woman has chosen herself to commit adultery. So the man who's divorcing her is not causing her to commit adultery because she's already done that. But what about the man who divorces his wife and remarries himself? Matthew 5 said nothing about the man who divorced his wife, that when, she takes an, uh, that when he takes another wife, he's doing anything wrong. That was not in the scope of the context, but we see that here. In Matthew chapter 19, we also see this idea that if a man puts away his wife and marries another, he commits adultery as well. Of course, except in the case of fornication. So the same standard applies to him, that if a man divorces his wife and remarries, in the same way he's causing her to commit adultery when she remarries, he is committing adultery when he remarries, with again the notable exception of if, if he or if adultery was already present. If, if the person had already stepped into that, that choice. Now, many have taken this to be an exception clause. The idea that when a person, when, uh, when adultery, when uh, unfaithfulness in the marriage is present, that means everything is loosed. Everything is unbound. Divorce is now on the table. It's allowed by God. Remarriage is on the table. It's allowed by God. God's okay with it. It doesn't matter. And everything is fine. I disagree. I do not believe that the text warrants that interpretation. It's not that I disagree. It's that I don't believe that's what the Bible is saying. Rather, I think the Bible is saying that if adultery is not the reason for said divorce, then they will be guilty of causing the spouse to commit adultery should that spouse remarry. But Jesus seems to make it very clear from the nature of his first answer that God never wants divorce. That divorce is not something that God is ever okay with. That there's never a place where it is licensed. Now again, as I say these things, I'm not, look, I'm not attacking, I'm not trying to attack anyone in this room today. I know we have a lot of people in our church that are divorced, some that are divorced and remarried. I'm not here telling you that you're evil what I'm telling you is what God's word says. I'm not trying to judge you. We're not trying to tell you you're, you're, you're a worse person than anyone else in the room. We're just saying what God's word says. And the reason why I believe this so confidently is because of Paul's teaching on the matter in 1 Corinthians. And it's Paul's teaching on the matter in 1 Corinthians. Remember, we have to take the whole word, word of God together. We allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And, and 1 Corinthians really helps us settle the mindset as it relates to these things in, in the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11, the Bible says this, And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. So Paul is reflecting what he explicitly says is the teaching of the Lord here. And that makes sense because this is very similar to what we read in Matthew 5, very similar to what we read in Matthew 19, in, uh, well, sort of Matthew 5, definitely Matthew 19, as it relates to these ideas. 
But take note that he is writing here in the context of believers, those who are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're going to make a distinction in just a few minutes between those who are unbelievers and those who are believers. So, so stick with me for that. But we are talking about those who are believers here. The Lord has commanded something to you who regard the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. Notice here, this is the first time that we see empowerment for the wife. And whether that's because of the nature of Greek culture in Corinth, or whether that's because of the nature of the church and the elevation of women uh, as, the, the, as Christianity really brought women up to a, a significant, a leveled the playing field, took them away from being seen as possessions and brought them to being seen as humans, right? Because there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, there's neither Jew nor Greek because we're all one in Christ. And so uh, female empowerment, uh, it's a word that has been uh, greatly tainted today, but female empowerment was greatly elevated by Christianity in that time. And so we see the commands that Paul reflects, and he says that these are from the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. Notice the interesting change in context here as we see those things. Notice also that as Paul is speaking to the audience of Gentiles in the Roman Empire, there's far more of that possibility that women could leave the man as we look at that, that context. But Paul is saying that it still should not happen that the wife should not depart from her husband and the husband should not put away his wife. And between those two commands, let not the wife depart from the husband, let not the husband put away his wife, he says this, but and if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Let her understand that she and her husband are still one flesh and she is departing she is separating herself, and maybe that for good reason. Maybe he's an abusive man. Maybe there's a reason why she needs to separate herself for her own well-being. But, and if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to him. This is the command of the Lord. Then it continues in verses 12 through 16. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she is pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. We'll pick up there in just a moment. Now we see the clearest context for why it might be that a, a spouse in a Christian context might want to slash need to leave. The, the direct context here that Paul is speaking of is when a woman or a man accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior and life changes, Right? And everything changes, and their desires change, and their direction changes. And now, all of a the sudden, they and their husband or wife who has not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior are completely different people. Right? The person who has accepted Jesus Christ in that marriage has been completely changed. And maybe the unbelieving spouse now says, I just don't like who you are anymore. I don't, I don't want to feel judged. You're doing this church thing. You're spending all your time with them. You've, you've got this entirely different way of looking at things, and I don't like that anymore. I liked the way you were when I married you, and you're not that person anymore. That's a real problem, isn't it? That's a real problem. You're already married. You're married to a spouse, and then you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Your spouse married you for your, who you were as an unbeliever. And now you're a believer, and they don't want to get saved. They're not interested. And you're this different person. And they don't like it. That's, that, that's, that's the primary idea here. That's the primary context of the consideration, that the scenario that Paul is playing through. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband... Uh, let me go back uh, to verse 12. We'll start at the beginning. But the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she is pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, if he is pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband, or, knowest, or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? So Paul then says that the remainder of this teaching is not directly given by the Lord, but it is from him. Now, what do we do with this? It's important to understand this. Does this mean that it should hold less weight than the previous verses? No, it doesn't. 
And that because we know from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So the Scripture's inspired, meaning that they're God-breathed, they're preserved, means that the very fact that this is in our Bibles means that God intended it to be authoritative in our lives. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, called and gifted by God to represent Christ to the established church. To this end, anything that Paul would write that God saw fit to have included in scriptures, we know must be understood to be authoritative. Paul wrote plenty of things that were not authoritative. He wrote personal letters. He wrote things to others. They didn't make it into our Bibles because they aren't inspired. He had his own ideas. He had his own thoughts, whatever. That's fine. Paul says here, this is not something that the Lord directly gave me, but this is something that I'm telling you. And he carries with him the authority of Jesus Christ. We know that because it is in our Bibles. So Paul gives a scenario where a believer is married to an unbeliever. And that that believer got saved presumably after he was already married. And now he's in a married relationship or she's in a married relationship with an unbelieving spouse. And in this scenario, the unbelieving spouse desires to depart. He says, if at all possible, don't, don't separate. If, if it's possible for you as a believing spouse to live with this person and, and they're willing particularly to live with you, notice, it, no, no, notice here, this is playing off of what Christ said. So the command from Christ is don't depart. And if you depart, remain unmarried. So Paul says to the believing side, the believing person, don't depart. But if your spouse really wants to leave, if your spouse it really, really has a problem, then you can let them go. So he says in verse 12, if your spouse is willing to stay with you, don't depart. And then he says this really interesting thing. He says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. What does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that because I'm saved, my spouse is going to heaven. Certainly doesn't mean that because I'm saved, my children are going to heaven. But this is where I believe God draws a line between the believer and the unbeliever. That a believing marriage is nothing to the Lord. Two people dead in their trespasses and sins, they're getting married, they're getting unmarried. It's all sin. It's all unsanctified. It's all outside of God because they don't have any faith. But the minute you add a person of faith into that mix, a believer marries an unbeliever. And, uh, uh, or, or two unbelievers and one, uh, and one person gets saved. Now you have a scenario where God regards that marriage as sanctified. Now you have a scenario where even if there's one unbelieving spouse and one believing spouse, God regards that marriage, can I say it this way, as a believing marriage, as a sanctified marriage. Same with children, that God regards the children in a home of, of, of a believer, even if there's an unbelieving spouse, as children of a believer, as 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 being a part of a Christian family. And why would that matter? Well, I'll bring that up in just a little bit as to why that might matter and why this verse might, might matter. But then Paul goes on to say, so if the unbelieving depart, if, if the unbelieving spouse has no interest in, in being with you, let them depart. And he says, a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Again, this has been interpreted to mean you can go and do whatever you want. You can remarry. You're no longer under under the, the, those standards, I don't see any reason why textually, linguistically, or anything else, that should be the way we interpret this. Why would it be that Jesus would say in Matthew 19 that Paul would say at the beginning of this very context, don't depart, and then he say, but it's okay here. That doesn't make any sense. What does make sense, though, is that in, in the spirit of 1 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10, or 9, 10, 11, Paul says, fight for your marriage. Don't leave. Stay. And then he says, but if the unbeliever wants to leave because there's so much conflict between you all because you're a believer and they're not, you don't have to fight. You can let them go. You don't have to fight to, to try to keep that marriage together. You're not under bondage because God has called you unto peace. But that doesn't change what he's already said in verses 10 and 11, but let them remain unmarried. 
or be reconciled to their spouse. Now, all of this about divorce having been laid out, it is with, it, with this understanding, this is the understanding that the church has carried into its interpret, historically carried into its interpretation of this command that, that the bishop be a husband of one wife. Now, historically, because of what we understand about the Word of God and this idea that what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder, that when, you, that when you enter into a marriage as a believer, that you are in a sanctified marriage, that God is bound together, and that by leaving that marriage and joining yourself to another, you're committing adultery, the church has historically understood this to mean that a pastor should not have been well, depending on who you talk to, divorced or at least divorced and remarried. Because then there's an adultery element there. Because then there is something that is no longer blameless about him. No longer irreproachable. Now, mistakes happen. But this episode in his life could give, give cause for him to be reproached. And so he should not be in a leadership position in the church. Uh, nowadays, however, the church is generally interpreting this, this phrase to mean one wife at a time. Nowadays, the, the, the broader church, which, ha, which uh, made peace with divorce decades ago, right? The broader church at large has made peace with divorce a long time ago. So now they're interpreting this to be a call against polygamy, not a call against divorce. And they're interpreting it to say one, one woman at a time. Now, I don't see that contextually. As we look at the word of God, there's no reason to impose that upon the text. When we see what the Bible teaches about divorce, when we see what the Bible teaches, the most natural interpretation is the one that traditionally has been carried in the church, which is that the pastor needs to not have another wife. He needs to have one wife, the wife who he bound himself to when he got married. Now, this does not mean that anyone who is divorced and remarried is fatally flawed or that God cannot use you, or that you are some lesser Christian, or that you'll never be good enough, or anything of the sort. It's all under the blood, right? It is all under the blood. We are not talking about the qualifications for salvation. We're not even talking about the qualifications for being used. We are talking about those who are ordained to represent Christ to the church. These people need to be, and the word is, blameless, above reproach, proper examples that no one can grab a hold of and cause to uh, and give a cause to shame the testimony of Christ. It's a statement of choices and consequences. God is merciful. God is gracious. But that by no means implies that our choices don't carry consequences, does it? Mercy and grace does not, never implies that, that our choices do not have consequences. And happy is that man who is willing to align himself with God's word, to live joyfully even under the implications and consequences of the choices that he has previously made. Because there's repentance to be found, there's restoration to be found, but some things can't be undone. You may understand then the degree of disagreement in the Christian circles about this command. As I've mentioned, many churches believe that this is simply against polygamy, only one woman at a time. Some believe this to mean that any divorce disqualifies, that if a man has ever had a divorce in his past, he is immediately disqualified for ministry. Uh, some believe only divorce and remarriage. Some believe that this applies to one's whole life. Some believe that it's only to life as a believer. I'd like to set down for you what I believe. What I think the scriptures teach here, and this is going to be, I don't know, I think perhaps many of you know my position, but semi-controversial. It's going to be a slightly different take on what the church has historically understood, or at least as I have understood what the church has historically understood. But I think it's the most consistent way to reconcile all of the passages of Scripture that we talked about today with the nature of marriage. Any man who, I believe, following his salvation... Or the, salva or, or the salvation of a spouse. Any man who is in a believing marriage, which means either he or his spouse was a believer and then gets divorced and who remarries 
is unqualified to be a minister. Any man who, following his salvation, had his wife leave him and who remarried is unqualified to be a minister. If a man, as a believer, got divorced, fought for his marriage, wife leaves, he is still being faithful to her. He is still either not getting married or is seeking to be reconciled to his spouse. I don't see anything in that scenario that would disqualify him as it relates to this statement, the husband of one wife. There might be a slight disqualification in the idea of ruling his house well and the qualifications of the wife. But if these things happened in a prior time, that that would be a different assessment. But as it relates to the actual divorce question, I don't see it just there. On the contrary, if a man divorces and and if, if, if all of the divorces and remarriages took place while he and his wives were all unbelievers, hearkening back to what 1 Corinthians says, that the husband is that the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. And this is where my view can get a little controversial. As I look at it, if a man lived a riotous and evil life before he got saved and he was in and out of marriages and then he's gloriously saved and everything changes and he's never been in one of those marriages that 1 Corinthians calls a sanctified marriage, I personally don't see a reason why that would disqualify him. Because following his redemption, that slate being wiped clean, that new life in Christ, he has walked according to sound doctrine. He gets married again to a believing woman. They start a life. I, I do not necessarily believe that that would disqualify him. Again, this is a bit controversial. This is not where our church stands because our church has heightened the level a little bit on that to be careful and to be safe. And that's fine. That's good. That's the standard that we've set. And that's where I want it to be. That's why it's there. But as far as my actual understanding of, this, of the scriptures go, trying to take into account that idea that the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband and the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, it seems to me that there is something about a believing relationship where one of the two is a believer that matters to God that changes the way God views that marriage fundamentally. And if I can put it this way, when we're talking about the qualification of blamelessness, right? Nobody is blameless if we count our pre-saved days into the mix. That man who was living in the world, who was consumed by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, who was going the wrong way, and then he was gloriously saved. And his life changed and turned around, and he wants to become a preacher. The guys like Billy Sunday and George Mueller, right? These men who were debauched men, saved out of their debauchery, and then started to live a life of righteousness and of faithfulness and preach the gospel with clarity and distinction, there's nothing, there's nothing blamable about that. That's a part of his testimony, right? That's not a part of his blame. And to say that a man could be debauched with drugs and with alcohol and with everything else, and he's okay to, be restor- to, to get saved and to go into ministry, but if a man married and divorced once during that time of debauchery he's no longer okay to go into ministry, doesn't make sense to me from a spiritual perspective, from a biblical perspective, from what the Word of God says. If a, if a man has made a new crea- creation in Christ and all things are made new, all of those former things, that's now a part of his testimony. That's not a part of his, his blame. We're talking about the manner in which a man, as a believer, has lived his life. And that's where I believe that that lays out, and that's why I believe it lays out that way. Likewise, if a man gets gloriously saved and his wife is an unbeliever and she chooses to leave him, and as I mentioned, he's staying unmarried, I don't know that that in any way, shape, or form offends this particular part of the qualification. 
Now, as I say all of this, let me mention this clearly. This is a complicated issue. Divorce is. We're talking about two independent free wills that are making decisions. We're talking about all of the complications of interpersonal relationships. We're talking about all of the complications of emotions as it relates to interpersonal relationships. I don't have all of the answers here, but what I tried to give you is a general framework for understanding what this qualification means. Now, what the church would do then, remember, because we're talking about the qualifications for ministers, is they would look at the person in front of them, the person who they believe might be affirmed unto ministry, and they would prayerfully understand all of the teaching and doctrine surrounding this verse and come to these, these qualifications and conclusions. Is there any direct and obvious biblical offense? Or is he in kind of that muddy gray area where people really struggle with? myself included, trying to understand and interpret it. If he's in that area, where in that area is he? Is he in the area of that, that lends to safety or is he in the area that lends not? And then finally, could the manner of his testimony hang upon him spiritual blame? Or is he still, with all of those cho- choices in the past and uh, his scenario in check, is he still blameless, above reproach. Remember, this is what we're talking about here. This is what we're trying to find. This is what the scriptures are exhorting us to, is those who are above reproach. So I tried to give you a little bit more of a nuanced perspective on this today than just the, just straight out, lay it out, no divorce, uh, that, that sort of an idea. And I want to give you that, not to by any way, shape, or form, under any circumstances, give exceptions to what, where God does not give exceptions, or to loosen what God has tightened, but rather for us to understand the complication of this issue and to understand and to have thought through a little bit why it is different churches have gone different ways, where they stand where they stand, why they may stand there, and how we can have some measure of confidence in the manner in which we interpret this. So you'll notice that, one last thing before we're done here, you'll notice that in order to find what it means that a man is the husband of one wife, I went to various scriptures on divorce, right? Scriptures which aren't written about ministers. Now take note of this. Everything that I just said about divorce, the reason why I had to give that little caveat about this is not us telling you that you're, you're, you can't be used and these sorts of things, The reason why I say all of that is because all of the scriptures that I just went to about divorce are not, this is the minister's qualification, it's this is you as a believer, right? This is the believer's qualification. And I want you to take note of this. Something that you're going to notice with almost every qualification of the minister is that they aren't higher than the expectations put upon believers, It's not a heightened qualification. It's not that uh, God wants you as a believer to live here, but the minister has to live like super godly, hyper pious. He's, He's the spiritual superman. Ministers are not spiritual supermen. They're men, okay? I do not have a heightened requirement on me than you. The qualifications for the minister are the qual... They're what's expected of believers, It's just saying that the men who you choose to lead you need to be good examples of what it means to be a believer, right? So you don't read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 and say, "Woo, I'm glad I'm not a bishop or a deacon. I wouldn't want to have to live that way. No, 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 no. You are supposed to live that way. It's just the bishops and the deacons among you are supposed to be the ones that form a good example of that for you. You choose men that are a good example of it because I'll tell you what, If the people that are standing in front aren't exemplifying it, it's going to be really hard, especially for our children, to follow. When they say, well, Pastor Wickler, he's a pastor. He's he's really godly. I had one child ask me once, you know a lot about the Bible. Were you born in heaven? No, I wasn't born in heaven. I really wasn't. Okay, I I, I was born on earth just like everyone else. I'm not special. But I am expected to be an example because those children are watching me because everyone's watching me and if pastor's doing it well then maybe it's okay so pastor needs to be a good example he needs to be 
blameless. He needs to not have something that someone can grab a hold of and say, well, I can let that into my life because pastor lets it into his life. That's the idea. Not sinless, only that the pastor be well and properly representing Christ to his body and the communities within which he serves and ministers. All right, let's uh, finish up this verse here. A bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior. All three of these connect to one another. Vigilant, sober, of good behavior. The Greek word behind the translation vigilant occurs only three times in the New Testament and all three times are in the pastoral epistles. Speaks of the idea of having a a sane mind or a right mind or a temperate mind. Having his mind in the right place. Having his priorities right. Being a mature person is really the idea there. That next word, sober, meaning self-controlled or moderate, Good behavior, uh, under control of his impulses and his thoughts. And I love this third word, of good behavior. You want to know why I love it so much? We saw this word just a few weeks ago. Remember when we were talking about women in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9? And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Let the women be adorned in modest apparel. That word modest. This is the same word. Now, it's translated here of good behavior. In fact, these are the only two times in the entire New Testament where that word is used. The idea that not only are women supposed to come in and by appearance be well-arranged, be modest, be put together in that sense, but pastors are also supposed to be well-arranged and modest and put together that the minister's deportment should express godliness, that there should be an arrangement about him, a put-togetherness about him, not that he puts himself together well, but that he is he's balanced. He's got the right priorities. He has his head on straight. He's sane. He's self-controlled. He's balanced. He's well-arranged. Combined, we find that the leader of the church is to be a man who is not impulsive, who is not fickle, who is well-behaved, who is under control, who is moderate, temperate, stable. May I just use the word? He's supposed to be a mature guy. The leader of the church is not supposed to be immature. He should be a, a stable, mature man. Two more attributes. First, given to hospitality. Hospitable, generous. We have an entire epistle, epistle of Third John, which speaks toward this end that to express the love of Christ is to express hospitality and generosity. And so again, this is an expected characteristic. Not that you all aren't supposed to be hospitable and generous, but that it ought to be found in the man who is the minister, that he ought to be a good example of this, right? Keep that mindset. And then finally, apt to teach. This is the first qualification and really one of the few qualifications that we find within this passage that is not demanded or expected of just everyone. Not everyone is a good teacher, and that's okay. But the man who is to lead the church, who is to be the bishop, pastor, elder in the church, is a man that needs to show a capacity to teach, a capacity and a desire to reflect information in a way that other people can understand. (laughs) May I put it that way? A man who bears the marks of this blessing of God upon him, upon his capacity to express truth. We aren't going to take this long on every verse and on every word, but, but to, to settle this into that context. That if a man is not an able communicator, he should not be a pastor in the local church. Now that's the end of this verse, and that's as far as we're going to get today. Again, not every week is going to be this slow. But I really wanted to set down the context for this divorce idea to understand what what is there, what isn't there, why it's there, why it isn't there, what it could mean, and how that could or should play out. There's never a requirement here that you have to agree with me, particularly as I, as I brought about my application of those principles. We at Legacy Baptist Church are a little more careful than that in our, in our official um, expectations and qualifications and that for the safety of the church and I think that is well as well. 
But we need to understand that the ministry isn't just a vocation for people to join because it sounds fun or sounds interesting. In fact, I don't even know how a person could glean such a misinterpretation from reading scripture about the nature of ministry. Ministry has a lot of highs and it has a lot of lows. And we have a big problem in our churches today with unaffirmed ministers because these qualifications are not well regarded. So again, as a brief application today to leave you with an application of sorts, I exhort you to take what you have learned and thoughtfully regard it as it relates to the Word of God. That as we sought today to take the Word of God as it relates to this idea, the husband of one wife, and to carefully apply it in a manner that is biblically balanced and understanding the nature of how God works in this world, understanding His character, and understanding the importance of protecting the church, so too we would do with all things. That we don't allow convenience or pragmatism to override what the Word of God prescribes. That we don't read the Word of God, say, wow, that that sounds this way, but let's try to find a way to let more people in. Let's try to find a way to loosen those standards. That's not what we want to do. As a matter of fact, if anything, we want to go the other way. We want to be careful. We want to tighten things up, knowing that only in obedience to the Word of God, in alignment with the Word of God, can we find the spiritual success that God has for us, because the success is not ours. Going all the way back to the very beginning of our time in our worship today at at, at 10 o'clock, we start with a preparation, and that because we are looking for the Spirit of God to do a work, right? It's a spiritual work. We aren't going to have a spiritual work done apart from God's way. And that's what we want. That's what we seek. And that's what we should desire, even among our ministers. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.